Hey listeners, this is Brian Moriarty, co-host of both Nerds on Film and Nerds on History. If you like the History Podcast, you know, do us a favor. We've got another great podcast on our channel called Nerds on Film. If you like listening to everyday people just talk to no end about films and film issues from both fandom and the film industry, check us out, please. You can go to nerdonomy.com to the podcast page and subscribe to us straight from there. Give us a listen. Check. Check one. Check. Check two. Check. Check to check 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 to check it out. What 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 it's all about? Work 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 it out. Let's turn this turn this podcast out. What? Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont, and I am Brian Moriarty. So, Eric, we have to talk a little bit about. I think our fan base, because we've got some interesting feedback we want to share with the world. Absolutely. And I know we usually kick right into a topic to begin with, but, uh, you know, we want to take a moment and pause and reflect on you guys who make our podcast what it is. If it wasn't for our fans, well, there'd be no reason to do this. And we, and we are just simply delighted that there are people out there who are avidly following our podcasts and giving us suggestions and commenting so thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts. Absolutely. And, you know, thank you for participating in Facebook because it's such a great open forum. It's so inviting. It lets a lot of people all, all participate and be able to gain from your great conversations that you're starting on there, too, and the great points that you're making and the great corrections that you're even giving us. And so I wanted to, to start that out by shouting out Melissa on our Facebook page, who corrected us from our Imhotep is a Badass episode, our Mummy episode. Oh, cool. And she noticed that I had mentioned that the Victorians were the first kind of tourists to Egypt. And I think that that was a bit of a misstep in my part. I, I think what I meant to say more so was that the Victorians were some of the first kind of modern tourists to Egypt. Whereas, actually, if you go back further into history, back into ancient Greece and ancient Rome, both of those populace who were coming to Egypt and checking out the country via the trade routes and what have you, spent time there traveling around, taking in the sights, so to speak, and even leaving behind graffiti in the many different tombs and monuments, uh, letting us know that they were there. And they can really, truly be considered the first tourists to Egypt. So I wanted to put that correction out for everyone to listen to and thank Melissa for giving us that great suggestion. We also had, like you had mentioned, Brian, some other folks who were interested in giving us some pointers and some suggestions for future episodes that they wanted to hear. Yes. Before you pull that up, though, I would like to mention, make another correction because one of our coworkers, Jennifer, who uh, was a history teacher... And listens to our podcast. How cool is that? <laughs> Must say. She taught U.S. history. So she knows the answer to our question from our last episode, which is that up until the amendment, the citizens of Washington, D.C. did not have the right to vote. Yeah, that is so crazy. They didn't even Odd. go to any other districts or any other states. Nope. They just didn't vote. Just didn't vote. Didn't have the power to vote. I thought she mentioned that they had the power to vote for local propositions and things of that nature, but it was the, the federal votes that they didn't vote for. They the, couldn't elect any federal officials. They right. couldn't elect the president because, of course, they didn't have any representatives, right? Right. So the only office they could vote for was the president. And that has thus since changed, however. Yes. Yeah. They do. But you're right. They could elect their mayor and their city officials. Right. Though what's weird is that all ordinances passed in Washington, D.C. are passed by Congress. Hmm. Odd, isn't that it? is kind of odd. Yeah. All right. Go figure. <laughs> Funny, wacky little capital of the United States. Yeah. Uh, and let's also not forget Latasha. Uh, Latasha, who gave us a really great shout out on our Facebook yeah, page. Yeah. So our first very, fangirl, right? Yeah, I know, right? Our first groupie. She was very much uh, wanting to hear more about cats in particular and more about animals. 
And so, you know, it was perfect because it actually tied in with an upcoming episode that we were going to do. So we thought, you know what? How cool is that that she's gone ahead and given us this uh, the shout out? Let's bump it up a notch and let's actually bump up this episode that we were going to probably record a little bit later on and uh, and do it now. So as a, as a special thank you and to encourage you folks who are listening, go on our Facebook page. We have a poll that we've been keeping up on there for a while now. Uh, you can go ahead and vote on one of the subjects that's, that's already on there, or you can actually submit and create your own uh, and have other people weigh in on that as well. So let us know, because we really want to hear what you guys want to hear from Nerds on History. Definitely. And with the amount of Twitter followers we have, too, please send us a tweet if you have an idea yep. for an episode. Tweet Ooh. us, Facebook us, all those wonderful little social media-like things. Indeed. Indeed. And of course, email, right? Because we haven't talked about that yet. You have the Brickmont at Nerdonomy.com and Brian with B-R-Y-A-N. Yeah, absolutely. Go to yeah. our uh, go to our website, nerdonomy.com. You can click on the Nerds page, and then you can email any of us, uh, including our, our fellow co-hosts on Nerds on Film. So give them a shout-out and uh, give them a listen to it. They're, they're excellent, awesome podcasts that we love to have. Yes, indeed. Yes, they are. Another fan of the show is my wife. And you know, she kind of has to be, right? Uh, <laughs> she doesn't really have much my of a choice. My girlfriend's quite a fan of the show, too. So, <laughs> yes. And one episode that she really had wanted to hear more about, which uh, Latasha was also totally in line with, was uh, more about animals. And so as part of today's episode, uh, we're going to cover the domestication of animals. We're going to talk about pets and how they have kind of become a part of our lives. And then we're going to cover a few other kind of topics that tie into all that, maybe even touch on the subject of animal cruelty, which is kind of a it's controversial a very, topic. very controversial topic. And indeed. I feel like it's something that uh, maybe, again, you folks who are listening would like to participate in and give us some feedback on Facebook and Twitter. Anyhow, let's jump into this. Let's do this. Let's okay. make this happen. So, Eric, let me fire off with the burning question that comes to mind. When did we start domesticating animals? That's a very important question for today's episode, isn't it? <laughs> it is indeed. Before we do that, let's talk about domesticating animals and taming animals. Because those are two very different things that right. are sometimes uh, confused with one another. Because domestication could be considered cattle, too, right? Correct. And yeah. domestication, at the very truest use of the word, is referring to the selective breeding of a species so that its more wild, more aggressive traits are weeded out. And it becomes a more docile and easier to control animal. So, in other words, dogs and cats. Dogs and cats, but domestication is included, you know, with sheep and pigs and cattle like uh, water buffalo, cows, bison. Those are all considered to be domesticated animals because they have been bred specifically to be more docile. Everything up to even, believe it or not, the domestic goose. <laughs> I'm I know, it sounds kind of funny, but these are all animals that are considered to be domesticated in that sense so tamed hmm. animals however are very different right so these are animals that are simply plucked from the wild maybe at a very young age that we go ahead and raise among us but they still have very aggressive tendencies and so what happened was initially all domesticated animals started as tamed animals and then through a process of selective breeding by picking the traits that we wanted to keep and discarding the ones that we didn't we went ahead and created the animals that we kind of keep around us much closer to our own pack, so to speak. And there's a lot of things that go into what actually makes a domesticated animal. A couple of traits that are important for those animals to be able to really domesticate. Such as? Well, in particular, you have to have something that adjusts to a pack mentality. Something that's capable of acknowledging kind of a leader and being able to follow along. 
So that's very important for making sure that they stay in check, right? That they're gotcha. not becoming overly aggressive, that they're able to see you as that alpha, so to speak. Uh, it's also important that they are not picky eaters. So they need to be able to eat whatever scraps and things that we're leaving behind, whatever's going to sustain them that they're okay with developing as now a sustainable food source. That's pretty important to guarantee that the animal's going to want to stay there. They also need to be able to breed in captivity. You don't see a lot of domesticated pandas around, right? Yeah. They're one of the most notoriously difficult animals to breed in captivity. They prefer to find their own mate, and they're very, very stressed out when they're kept in captivity, which makes them not want to reproduce. So those are a couple of very key and important features that, that allow you to have a domesticated animal. And it's no surprise, then, that dogs really kind of classified as being the very first domesticated animal. We see suggestions of domestication with dogs, with canids, going back possibly 30,000 years. Wow. Possibly. There's a lot of debate over that. Truly, we know that when genetically, because we've looked at this from mitochondrial DNA associated with modern dogs today, that their divergence from wolves which is where the dog species came from. Every single breed of dog on Earth originated from wolves. Yeah, in fact, they are still considered the same species. They are. They're all canids, exactly. Yeah. There's just variations now that have been caused due to selective breeding. 15,000 years ago is when we actually see that divergence in the genome. And as a result, now these dogs became a lot more docile, shorter snouts, yeah. less of a, of a heavy coat for the most part, and they became considerably less aggressive. And foxes, too. And foxes, as well. Yeah. Foxes were also domesticated early on. So it kind of begs the question, why did <clears throat> we do it in the first place, right? What kind of made us say, this sounds like a good idea, let's go ahead and get this, uh, this dog over here and keep it around in our, in our village? Because originally they started as wolves, which were very dangerous animals that you attempted to avoid if you could. But they quickly realized, probably from wolves actually taking advantage of early hunter-gatherer societies and staying close to the fires for warmth and coming in and taking safety and security that you know humans actually provided, that it could be a really symbiotic relationship. Yeah, and I'm sure, of course, you mentioned hunting. Wolves would help with that because their tracking capabilities are fantastic. That's really what boiled down to be the, the, the primary reason to have them around. Uh, their their senses were very heightened. You know, they could see very well in the dark and in low light environments. They had uh, excellent senses of smell, and so they were able to assist us as trackers and hunters, uh, which was key to our survival at that time because agriculture hadn't developed yet. More to how they kind of became associated with us on a on a personal kind of bonding relationship, though, was the fact that you know dogs helped to keep you warm. There is an aboriginal saying that says a three-dog night, which refers to the fact that when it's really, really cold, you got your dogs and you kind of bundle them up against you, and the heat that you were all generating kept you warm. There's also references, of course, to you know the dogs being there to warn you when there's uh, predators that are coming because of their heightened senses, so keeping them nearby would give you a, a, an alert to anything else out there that was far more dangerous. And they were happy to kind of sit around, you know? They had a steady source of food. They would eat all of our scraps and leftovers. They didn't have to hunt anymore. They could just kind of hang out and uh, and eat the bits that fell from the table, so to speak. You know, it was a kind of a natural progression, and it made perfect sense uh, for it to happen. In my opinion, what it hasn't made nearly as much sense though is what we've done to dog breeds today, which is through a process of extremely severe selective breeding. We now have hundreds of different breeds, but it was all partially or mostly due to inbreeding them. Uh, finding those traits that we wanted, even among sibling animals, 
and then mating them again to keep those traits that we liked. And it results in all sorts of different breeds of animals that have all sorts of different characteristics. And also all sorts of health problems, too. Over 250 identifiable genetic disorders have been identified in dogs alone. Yeah. And my wife, who is nuts about animals, absolutely adores animals. She has a, a chow, her family dog, right? So her parents, the, they still have their, their chow chow chula, which means pretty in Spanish. And she's, you know, the whole highlight of the, of the family up until the birth of my kids. But um, she had $900 worth of surgery when they first got her because chows have an inherent problem with their eyes uh, and require surgery on their eyes and their tear ducts and, their, and the, the glands that are associated with them. And that's common. If you own a purebred chow, you guys know what I'm talking about right now. Pugs also have airway passage problems, and so that's why they tend to snort yeah. uh, when they when they sleep and when they, they kind of snore. My parents have a couple of, of uh, purebred Irish setters, and their big problem is uh, their stomach will get overturned because if they run too much, they, if they enjoy themselves too much, they may just, it could get twisted in their lining and it messes them up. Because it actually can kill them. Yeah. yeah. And we breeded all these traits into them intentionally because they looked unique. They looked exotic. They looked special. Or they were the right size for us. Now we want something smaller, more, even more docile that we could kind of just keep on our laps, a lap dog. And this is not something that's unique to dogs, obviously. You see this happening with cats as well. And a cat is such an interesting animal. And I was thinking about it last night. I'm like, how am I going to really describe cats? Because I have two of them myself. And they're like teenagers. <laughs> And let me explain why. There have been why. so many analogies used <laughs> to describe the personalities of cats. I like Robin Williams' description of them as drag queens. <laughs> <laughs> Here's your shoes. Here's your shoes. Blah. <laughs> exactly. Also an, an awesome classic analogy. But they are a lot like teenagers when you think about it. Okay. They are fiercely independent until they want something. <laughs> Screw this, I'm going the way. Can I have some food? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then they won't leave you alone. So then they have to borrow the car. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so cats developed in a really interesting fashion as well. And many people assume the cats started being domesticated in ancient Egypt. That's what I would have thought too. Where did it really start? It actually started in Cyprus. Not all too far away, mind you. They're they're Still also in the seated in, in the Near East, right? Yeah. On the, the Near Eastern kind of mainland, right, in the Fertile Crescent, and now what's modern-day Iran and Lebanon and what have you, is where we find some of the very first small feline breeds existing. And those moved over via trade routes and what have yeah. you to places like Cyprus. And unlike dogs, cats did speciate from the wild cats. Correct. Yeah, so there was enough... That was natural. That just happened on its own. Yeah, that was a, that was a product of evolution. Okay. However, they were still very, what we would describe today as feral. So they were wild. They had a lot of those traits and tendencies of their larger cousins without the ferocity and danger that we would associate with lions and, and tigers and cheetahs and, and animals of that nature. So we were able to easily domesticate them. And in Cyprus, we find examples of this going back over 9,000 years. Interesting. Some of the very first feline burials associated with humans and were obviously of importance to those people because they were buried in the same orientation as the human owners were buried in the grave. So it wasn't just, you know, we threw this animal in there for food or we threw this animal in there because, you know, it died right next to you. It was because you liked it and you wanted it. And obviously it was associated with your afterlife. So that begs the question, would they euthanize the cat when the master died? Well, the earliest example found was only eight months old. 
And because it was buried with its owner, the suggestions are, yes, quite likely the cat was killed and then buried with the owner. In Egypt, we definitely know that 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 happened from time to time. And really, if we type now over into Egypt, you have this kind of stereotypical obsession with cats that's oftentimes talked about. Right, right? there's this conception... That I believe is that they're the protectors of the underworld. Is that right, or is that is that more of a movie? That's a little bit more movie. Um, okay. They are associated, however, with protection. Okay. Not so much protection of the deceased, but protection of the living. Okay. So in Egypt, there was a goddess by the name of Bastet, mm-hmm. and Bastet was characteristically represented as a cat. She was a protector of children and the vulnerable. So it actually kind of makes sense because if you think about it, cats originally were working animals. Not my cats today, but cats were originally working animals. So what would they do? Well, think about it. What do you, what do you think the cats would be excellent at, that they would that their skills would be honed for? Well, they do hunt small creatures, so they'd be good at pest control, I imagine. Exactly. Okay. And in any community where you had people living in very, very close quarters, where your refuse was usually not too far away from where you were living as well, you were going to attract rodents, right? You were going to attract rats. And rats, historically, as we know, are oftentimes carriers of disease. So these cats would go off and be around in the neighborhoods, and they would kill off all the local rodents. And in turn, they would stick around and eat the little bits and leftovers, and they didn't have to go out and hunt. They had rats to fill up their tummies, and then they had little bits and pieces to fill them up. So the Egyptians obviously made that connection. They said, oh, great. Well, these are protectors then. To the point where they developed these enormous animal cults. And towards the latter half of Egyptian history, you had temples literally run by cats. <laughs> what? I know it sounds kind of weird, but they were pretty much the owners of the temple. In the er- I just get this image of, of the cats, and just, they're all over the place, and just, like, stuff is knocked over, and just it looks all types of disheveled. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> Okay, good to know that my perception was not too far from reality. In the cult center of Bubastis, which obviously was associated with Bestet, right, uh, you had temples there that were dedicated for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to breed and worship cats. Okay. And the priests would literally just kind of walk around and they would take care of the cats and clean up all their feces and give them food and bathe them and wash them. And it was a pretty nice existence if you were a cat, up until the point where you were meant to become a votive offering. <laughs> oh, right. This is a time period when it was really, really popular for the middle class and the upper class to pay to have animals killed, mummified, and then given as an offering to the gods. Cats were in great number, right? They oh, were right. easy to reproduce, easy to create uh, replacements, as awful as that sounds. There are suggestions that they killed them in very humane ways. They were not there to torture these cats, right? Obviously, or else you know, they wouldn't have taken such good care of them. Right. So they would have, you know, done like one swift motion to the to the head or perhaps even broken the neck or what have mm. you. Yeah, I know. Not the greatest image. And this was done very quickly, though, so there was no pain and suffering. And then they were mummified, uh, given back to the person, and then they would be given as an offering to the temple. It was genius. These priests made so much money off of these cats. And it got to the point where it was getting really bad. Like, they were tricking people. They were faking people out because there were so many people that they couldn't even keep up with the cat's breeding cycle. So a lot of times they would use just like disarticulated body parts from people and wrap them up and claim that they were cat mummies. Oh, wow. Because we've done x-rays, right? Of these cat mummies. It's like an arm. It's like an arm bone. Seriously, wrapped up to look like a cat. Because these cats, when you you think about a mummified cat, right? You ever given a cat a bath? No. 
Okay, my wife does it all the time. I don't know why. The cats I, are supposed to give themselves baths, but apparently Martha feels like cats like aren't they repulsed by water too? Oh, they don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> you know when when Martha's up to washing the cats when you have this scream come through the through the whole house. But yeah, yeah that was me by the way. That was not like one of the cats in the yeah, house. We would just would like to declare that no cats have been harmed in the recording of this podcast. Now only egos. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've ever washed a cat, anyone out there. Their fur sticks right to them, right? And you can see how skinny cats really are. Now, imagine extracting all the water out of that cat. Mm. It's going to get even skinnier, right? Yeah. So when you see these cat mummies, they're all wrapped up, and they just look like a bowling pin, more or less, with, with wrapping around it. And there was a point where the priests in Egypt were actually debating the ethics of doing this. Uh, a couple of manuscripts that we're talking about were complaining about it, saying that there should be one vessel for every offering, Meaning the whole cat should be inside of it and not just like one little bone and saying it's a cat. So, Gotcha. Yeah. is a way of regulating it. Exactly. Now I have to ask, since we had temples devoted to cats, was this the point in time where the notion of the cat lady appeared? The cat lady. Well, Bastet, like I said. It was a joke. Oh, (laughs) come on, man. (laughs) Catwoman. This is the origin of Catwoman. Uh, as uh, told to us by Halle Berry. And, uh, and yes. <laughs> oh, don't. Anyhow. We should, we should not have mentioned that movie. <laughs> uh, that's a film podcast. Yeah. Now I've just uh, invoked the wrath of, of David and Sarah. And they're going to be very, very upset with me. But anyhow, moving on. Yeah. So certainly not just in ancient Egypt, though. I mean, cats have a cultural significance in a lot of different cultures or cultures around the world. So in Japan, for example, the maniki niku is the symbol of good luck and good fortune. And if you've ever kind of seen it maybe in uh, grocery stores or what have you, it's like a, a little cat and he's just kind of sitting there and he's got his paw up and he's kind of doing a little wave or beckoning to you. So then you also have cats in like Russia, for example, where it's considered owning a cat is, is good luck. And having it uh, before you move into a new home is considered to be kind of almost like a blessing or, or good luck for, for your new house. Probably, again, because, it, you know, cats keep away all the rodents and what have you. Sure. And, of course, you've ever, always heard of the black cat, right? So in the Middle Ages, cats were considered to be kind of the vessels of witches. They were considered to be their, their minions. And so black cats kind of got a negative connotation, negative association at that point. Which is kind of sad today because even today... Black cats are not the ones that are desired in animal shelters. I know they're gorgeous animals, too, you know. Yeah, and I know this because we got our, one of our cats, Saki, uh, we got her because she's very dark in color, and they, the Humane Society had a sale pretty much at the holiday, and they were selling off their cats for $10 because they were black cats and nobody wanted them, which is really sad. That is very sad. So we brought her home, and she's she's now part of the family. I'm just guessing here, but that whole stigma was based purely on just this stigma against black. Black was immediately associated with evil. And right. It was kind of a dark and and, yeah. and very negative kind of color. No base to that at all, because I don't even think Wicca uh, uses cats in their ceremonies or in their no, rituals. No, no, not, not in the reality of it all. It's just, you know, in the Middle Ages, though, it was considered to kind of be a, a symbol, more or less, of witchcraft, although not reflective of what Wiccans practice today, for example. Of course not. Yeah. White cats, actually, in the UK are also considered to be a bad omen. Really? So on the alternative, because they're thought to be very light and kind of spectery almost, almost ghostly. So seeing a white cat is oftentimes commented on as being a negative thing so in the UK. equally as bad as a black cat. Yeah. 
Interesting. Yeah, it is kind of kind of funny. So what if the cat was Calico? <laughs> <laughs> I was just confused. He was torn between the forces of good and evil. And then brown all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Cats, love them or hate them, they're going to be around for a long time to come. And again, just like dogs, there's hundreds of breeds of cats. And a lot of them also kind of have some pretty bad uh, sure, genetic disorders. They're being bred for phenotypical types. And then it ends up that they have health problems. It is totally okay to mix breed your oh, animals. yeah. It's encouraged now. It's good. Absolutely. Yeah. Got to diversify that gene pool. My dog, Ellie, is this combination of Chihuahua and Terrier. And she... You've seen her. She's a funny little dog. I She's like her. She's she, cute. She looks like a giant version of the Taco Bell dog, doesn't yeah. she? She <laughs> really bit. does. Only kind of a little more scruffy. A little more scruffy and a little more rotund. Yeah. Because... Yeah. Yes. I like that. I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... Okay. Well, you mentioned Ellie... You've had other dogs, though, right? I have had other dogs. Well, my parents in Colorado, my dad and my stepmom, have several dogs and cats. And in fact, that's the coolest thing ever because common myth, this is my one little piece I can contribute to this podcast, <laughs> is that dogs and cats are not enemies. No. no. It's, it, it comes down to how you raise them. If you raise a cat from a kitten with dogs, no problems whatsoever. They will go side by side with dogs and they will be quite friendly and almost in a very odd way develop very strong emotional bonds and mate, mating not ma- like mating in the sense of procreation but like no friendship with yeah. with uh dogs that you would normally associate with two animals that are mating correct yeah or who are mates because yeah. mating again we get that the right, verb right, 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 right. is yeah so let's not go there let's not go there no because that can't happen it's <laughs> not viable let's really not go there. <laughs> let's really not go there if like cats and dogs living together mass hysteria <laughs> Oh, Ghostbusters, how we love you. Please, continue. Sorry. This was fascinating because my stepmom had four grown cats. At the time, we had a dog, uh, a black lab named Casey. And they never got along because the dog's like, play, 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 let's play. And the cats are like, no, ew, no, no, get away from me. Stop. Stop, exactly. No, get away. Because they were never raised with dogs. Right. When we got... The newer cats, and we've had so many, because in Colorado, unfortunately, cats... Yeah, you mentioned that on one of the previous episodes that... It's really sad, because coyotes are and bears are quite prevalent in that area of Colorado, and it's not uncommon for the for a cat, if it's an outdoor, indoor cat... To not come back home. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, right away from kittenhood, all the way to being a full-grown cat, immediate connection yeah. with the dogs. And it's really kind of charming. It's really cute to see them play with one another. Well, I have a dog, and that might surprise you because you, looking around my house right now, don't don't see a dog. I have a dog. I named him Einstein. My in-laws named him something else. But uh, we got him when we were living right near my, my in-laws, and he developed such a close connection with Chula, my wife's family dog, that uh, when we moved and we came back to San Jose, he kind of stuck behind. He's on an extended leave right now and I he's see. uh he's taking care of chula in her declining years and what kind of breed is einstein he's a poodle because you know poodle. real men own poodles like the big old poodles no he's, he's a little miniature poodle oh, okay yeah he's a tiny little guy okay. he looks kind of like einstein though because he's got the white curly fluffy hair on the top and he's got gotcha. a little bit of a fro thing that's going cute. on yeah that's very cute well we also had other dogs too because casey was not our our last dog my parents have had dodger for 10 years now almost australian shepherd it's funny because when we take them on walks, the way that Australian Shepherds herd is they very gently nip 
they they, they very gently right. like will grab like you. the sheep right yeah and yeah. then like direct you in a certain area so when he thinks we're going off path he will like grab my <laughs> pant leg sure. and just like ah pull Go this over. way come on exactly come on. exactly very stop cute. texting and then we had Clancy for years. He unfortunately passed away a couple years ago. But his cousin Claire, who looks just like him, and uh, now Murphy, we now have they now have two purebred Irish setters as well as the the Australian Shepherd. See, I think you're really fortunate growing up because when I was growing up, we really didn't have any animals in the house. My father is very much against keeping animals. He, as a child, had an Irish setter named Cookie. And as was very common in the 1940s and 1950s, the animals did not live in the home. They, they stayed outside. In the, in the dog house, right. And it's funny, because I was thinking about it. If you watch cartoons from, like, the 1950s and the 1960s... It's, they're all in the... And in fact, it was really... When they were in the house, it was kind of a, a It was bad a bad thing, thing right? Yeah. They've always been hit on the head with newspapers and kicked out, right. and they would stay The cats in. were in the house. Yeah. The dogs right. stayed in the outside. So the dogs were in the dog house. Right. And I mean, gosh, how many people have dog houses these days, but really use them as dog houses? No, I mean, Ellie sleeps in our house. She has her own little bed. Right. You know, but like, but very different now than it was back then. So my father never really developed too close of a connection with the dog. I guess they used to play or something. He doesn't really talk a lot about it. I think something traumatic happened to Cookie and he's repressed it and he doesn't want to talk about it. And that's why he's so against keeping animals. Could be. But um, when I was growing up, I begged him for a dog. And my sister was begging him for a cat. We wanted animals. And what we ended up with was Basil. Basil was my hamster. <laughs> You're like, I want a dog. I want a cat. You're getting a hamster. Actually, my father called it the rat. The rat. And the rat was not allowed anywhere in the home. How cruel. I mean, nothing against Mr. Brickmont. Mr. Brickmont's a very nice guy, but... Uh, he can be a little cruel sometimes. But, like, hamsters, first off, look nothing like rats. They are fuzzy, and they don't have... Their tail's not that long. I think it was mostly a show. Okay. I think he was putting on a bit of a show. But he used to call it The Rat. And I defied him, of course, by taking him and, and putting him in his little hamster ball and letting him run all around the house. My father gets so angry because he'd be walking. <laughs> and Basil somehow knew how to pester my father because he was the only one that he would go full speed and ram right into his shins <laughs> and, his, and his ankles. And, you know, it, it was, and I love that hamster. He was actually really cool. He lived for almost three years, which is really unusual really? for hamsters. They <clears throat> usually live like a year, if you're lucky. And he was very, very smart. I taught him to run in mazes, and I taught him to, I actually kind of potty trained him. <laughs> no, that sounds really weird. But there was one little part of his uh, cage that I used to encourage him to do his business in. And uh, he eventually picked it up, and that's just where he would go pee. Very good. Well, you know, speaking of rodents... See, these dogs and cats were not my first pets. We had a rabbit named mm. Floppy. Floppy. What happened to Floppy, Brian? Oh, God. Do you really want to know? Um, yeah, let's talk about it. Okay. We will. <laughs> uh, Floppy, as the name implies, he was one of those rabbits whose ears would just would not stick up. They flopped down. Cute rabbit. Very, very quiet, as most rabbits are. We had them. We, we <laughs> I don't really. Yeah, that's true. I don't really hear a lot of. Yeah, there's no really loud, loud rabbits. And what would they say? <laughs> you know, they're not gonna say what's up, Doc. <laughs> you know, true. Continue. Or do you do meow. I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, Floppy was kept in a cage out in our garage with the water, doser, and uh, his food. We would always, you know, bring his cage into the house during the. But we put him in the garage during during the day when no one was home. And it so happens that one day we left was uh, an unpredictably warm day. And um, as you may be wondering, for those who know about rabbits, rabbits don't have sweat glands. 
at all. So unfortunately, poor old Floppy just overheated. Oh and no, died. Oh, yeah. Which this is, is quickly uh, turning into our most depressing podcast. I'm sorry, ever. I know, because we really shouldn't be talking about our pets' demises at all. But in my morbidly dark sense of humor, I will jokingly say that Floppy got baked. <laughs> uh, poor Floppy. Poor Floppy. May he rest in peace. In While we're on the subject of <laughs> rabbits, though. Him. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. While we're on the subject of rabbits, go ahead. Almost as equally morbid, unfortunately, I have a rabbit story for you too. Okay. So, and this also probably explains a lot about my father. So, my father was born, you know, at the ends of the Great Depression, right beginning of the Second World War, and times were tough. People didn't have a whole lot of food, and we lived right here in San Jose in the suburbs. No. So, my grandparents used to keep rabbits. And they kept, yeah, they kept a lot of rabbits. I mean, there were hutches and hutches and hutches all throughout the backyard. And even after the depression was long gone, you know, into the 1970s and to the early 80s, my grandparents continued to keep rabbits. So when my mom, who, by the way, loved rabbits, and when she met my father, had a pet bunny who she potty trained and used to kind of just jump around in her apartment, absolutely loved rabbits. When she was invited over to meet my grandparents and have dinner with them, my grandmother, who we will probably do a whole episode on at some point on Crazy Grandmas, because I I love my grandma. She was the greatest person. I loved her to death, but she was absolutely nuts. (laughs) And she had a really sick sense of humor. And I'm convinced that this was a test that she put my poor mother through, because she said, well, we're going to have rabbit for dinner tonight, and you're going to help me uh, get it nice and fresh and cleaned. And my mom's like, "Uh, okay. So she's like, come on, let's go in the backyard. So my grandma leads her out. She's like, go and pick one out. <laughs> so my mom had to pick out the, you know, the biggest, fattest, juiciest bunny she could find. And she's like, all right, it's pretty easy. All you got to do is smack him on the head really hard. So my mom, not wanting to, you know, insult my grandmother and wanting to impress her, sucked it up and took that mallet or whatever they used. I don't know what it was, a little club or something, and clubbed that little bunny on the head. And my grandma's like, all right, we ain't done yet. So... <laughs> She got, you know, the knife, and she's like, this is how you do it. It's really easy. It's like taking off a jacket. (laughs) She, you know, you make one cut, and the skin just flies right off. And uh, and into the pot they went. And uh, my poor mom, I don't know what she thought when she went home to her bunny, but, you know, she she did it for love. For those of you who can't see this right now, Brian is practically in tears and is And my jaw is on the floor. (laughs) Yeah, Grandma was... um, I am mortified. <laughs> Grandma was an interesting person. We'll go off on a whole episode on her one day. She used to steal stuff and get in fights in front of the front yard and watch professional wrestling. She was a really interesting person. <laughs> Is that where it dearly. comes from? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but that was the, the test that she put my mom through. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Did you ever have fish at I all? I did. You have a fish? And they where never did, survived. Where did fish come from? Where did the whole idea of keeping fish so, it seems so odd. So the carp, obviously, is something that's associated not just in Asia, where we usually see the carp, and we associate it with, like, koi in Japan, for example. Uh, it's also, interestingly enough, in Europe as well. So the Prussian carp, for example, is a, another variety of carp that was kept in Central Europe. And then almost kind of independently, just parallel to that, was also being kept in China and in Japan. And the modern goldfish that we see today... Uh, came from a small breed of carp that actually started out just in a very plain kind of silver color, uh, but through selective breeding was bred with mutations and eventually developed this kind of red 
and gold and yellow color. And so we see in uh, in China during the Tang Dynasty between about 618 and 907 AD, uh, the first real efforts at creating these gold and more realistically yellow goldfish. And they were symbols of royalty because those were the, the colors of royalty in, in China at the time was gold and, and yellow. In fact, it was actually forbid for anyone outside of the royal family to keep gold or yellow goldfish. Uh, everyone else just got kind of the plain silvery ones. Uh, and of course, they were also used as feeder fish, right? So they were used to feed other fish, which they still are today. Uh, but many of us know goldfish because we went to the fair or we went to the carnival and we won a little goldfish and we brought it back and it lived for about a week. But right. um, keeping goldfish in the home uh, actually began during, again, in China during the Ming Dynasty, uh, many hundreds of years later, so around the 12th and 13th centuries, uh, where they would take the fish and now, rather than being in a pond environment, uh, even make even breathe them to be even smaller and keep them in, in glass bowls in their home. So that actually yeah. began in China uh, quite a long time ago. Interesting. And, yeah. And eventually, obviously, the carp moved over and became the koi of Japan, which are you know, very, uh, very often kept in many gardens around the world now, not just in Japan. And they are huge, too. They're massive. Yeah, they're really gigantic. Yeah, there's, um, there's a car wash not too far away from where we are right now, the Delta Queen, and they have a pond where there's ducks and, and koi, and or, or it looked like koi. I don't know if they're true I'm koi. pretty sure they are koi, actually. And it is so creepy. Because when they, <laughs> because when you give them a little thing for food, they can sense the food, right? Yeah. And we don't see the rest of their bodies. All we see are these little mouths that come up to the service, service going, mwah, 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 mwah. <laughs> like five or six of them in this brackish looking kind of water. It's, it's like a little, I, I don't know if I can handle having a koi fish, I will say. <laughs> it's a little well, creepy. Have you ever been to, um, again, here in San Jose, the, the Japanese Peace Garden? I have not. Down on Kylie. I've heard great things about it. Uh, it's actually right next to the to the historic Kylie Park, which is an outdoor mu- museum, and uh, the uh, it's happy, got the old houses on it, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. and the Happy Hollow Petting Zoo. Mm-hmm. So, if you're familiar with, uh, with the area and, and the Bay Area, it's very very well known. It's been around for a really long time, uh, and they have this beautiful Japanese Peace Garden where they keep again giant koi. At least they did because a lot of them died of herpes. How? Did that happen? I don't know, but about a year ago, Martha, the kids, and I took a trip to the petting zoo, and we ended up going on a little hike or a little walk over there, and there was a sign that said, I'm sorry, our carper or our koi are no longer around. Uh, they contracted herpes. And I just, you know, I'm wondering what is going on in that garden at night. <laughs> That's what I'm wondering. <laughs> These poor koi all died of a sexually transmitted disease. So anyhow, who knew? Who knew? Koi can get herpes. Go figure. Yeah, who knows? it affects us all. <laughs> you know, hey, we talked about hamsters a little bit earlier. Yeah, and they're arguably cuter cousin, the guinea pig. Oh, we right. didn't really talk about. And guinea pig is more like the the feral version, right? Right, exactly. They're they're a lot um, a lot larger, and guinea pigs. For those of you who are from South America, probably know this already. Uh, that's where they originated from. In, and they make a great snack, apparently. They <laughs> do. In Peru, that's primarily what they were uh, raised for, was yeah. as a food source. Uh, yeah. Going back to 5,000 BC. Really? Yeah. It goes that far back. Huh? Archaeological evidence suggests that the, the guinea pig began its domestication and being kept in captivity and bred going back uh, 7,000 years. Wow. Which is pretty impressive. And uh, they became more than just food, though. They became associated with folk culture, 
uh, with deities associated with them and were given out as gifts during weddings and other festivals and things of that such. So guinea pigs were popular far before they ever ended up in uh, American pet stores. Uh, in fact, the Spanish conquistadors went ahead and kind of claimed the guinea pigs for their own and brought them back. And that was one market that they were, again, able to monopolize off of was selling guinea pigs to uh, wealthy 17th century uh, Spaniards who spread the rest of the breed throughout Europe. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Who knew guinea pigs had such an interesting backstory? No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a lot about our own pets and animals. And uh, one thing that we haven't really touched on yet, though, is the ethics behind a lot of this. And the institutions that we really created to keep animals, not just in our homes, but also in zoos. And there's a lot of folks who suggest that the zoo itself is inhumane. And I kind of just want to get your thoughts on that. Uh, Well, I guess it would depend on the zoo. I think we have some really nice zoos in our area. The San Francisco Zoo is really great because they um, are not just a cage where you look at the animal and smile at it. And it's not just as an oddity or like a sideshow. Right. It's a habitat. It's, it's a really, it's a habitat. Exactly. They have reserves. You know, there's a chimp, uh, not a chimpanzee. Well, there is chimpanzees there, but there's a silverback gorilla reserve. Yes. And it's this massive area that you can't go near. You can only be on the outer gates and observe, you know? You can get pretty close, but yeah, I mean, it's not, it's if not them behind. Yeah, exactly. It's not them behind a cage or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. They have to be close to you in order right. for you to really get anything close out of it. At all types of, anthropoids and primates in that but also you know the california grizzly bear Mm -hmm. beautiful exhibit they have two beautiful grizzlies there which are the last pretty much not the last last but they were both orphans i believe from their parents so it's this very the bears are becoming more and more rare uh here in california all the time in fact the short-faced bear is completely extinct now california Mm -hmm. short-faced bears is no longer with us except for on our flags yeah the flags of california does it exist now very sad. And, you know, the modern zoo today is, is a far cry from what it used to be, right? We think of a zoo, we think of it as being something that uh, we go as an attraction to. But the very first zoos actually began in ancient Egypt. And really? I always like to tie it back there. The Queen Hapshatsut, the Queen Pharaoh, who had a very successful reign, went ahead and organized trade routes down into South Saharan Africa and brought back as you know, was requested these really exotic animals, including giraffes and rhinoceros, um, you know, chimps and other animals, and were all brought back in and kept in her own menagerie. Not a zoo, right? A zoo is kind of a public place where people come to, to to see, whereas a menagerie is more of a private collection of animals that was kept and was very common among royalty, not just in the ancient Egypt, but also, you know, in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient China. <clears throat> it goes further than the ancients. Uh, the play I did a couple months ago, Mary Stewart, we talked about one of the more oddities of uh, her when she was li- living in the, the French court. She had pet bears. Yeah. <laughs> Something you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Be careful, please. <laughs> exactly. Well, so mostly they would keep them for a few months when they were cubs and then right. they just run off. And yeah, exactly. Know, do, <laughs> you know, do their own thing. <laughs> but yeah, these menageries, in fact, the very first official zoo, the Vienna Zoo, developed as an uh, afterthought of the Royal Austrian Menagerie that was Interesting. there. Interesting. And that evolved and changed and became a public place. I believe in 1765, I think it was, right around there is when it became open to the public. Maybe it was a few years later. And that is still a functioning zoo. It is the oldest modern, if you will, zoo uh, in the world. Interesting. And, of course, many zoological societies 
were also formed at that time. The famous Zoological Society of, of London, for example, in 1826. And then, of course, the London Zoo is, again, one of the oldest and most well-known zoos in the world. Sure. And, you know, many of these zoos have moved beyond their more controversial practices, which initially they were just designed as attractions. You know, they didn't think about the habitats that the animals were living in. They didn't consider their treatment as being anything but just sideshow objects. And so now modern zoos have made real efforts, though, to go ahead and perform conservation and give back to the animal habitats, the natural habitats, by attempting to breed endangered species today so that that species does no longer go extinct and, in many cases, actually rehabilitate them and reintroduce them into the wild. So I've got to give a shout-out to modern zoos. I, I know there's a lot of controversy about it, and again, we want to hear your thoughts on it on the Facebook page. So if you, if you don't agree with my viewpoint, let's talk about it. Let's have a, a great dialogue on Facebook. But I feel like a lot of modern zoos have done their part to improve. That doesn't mean that they didn't always exist in really deplorable conditions. Sure. There has been a tremendous effort to protect animals more. And even when you think about just the approach in general, when you look at something like watching Animal Planet or uh, the Discovery Channel, every zoological show that you have there is all based around respect for the creature and understanding how it thinks, how it moves, all of its behaviors that we can observe and really what you don't want to do, right? Especially if like, you're talking about a special about lions. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's that dude, I can't remember his name. I'll have to look him up. But he lived with lions. Oh, I think. Are you sure it was lions? I, I know there was a guy who lived with bears. And that they was turned whole, on him. No, there was a documentary. And apparently there's footage of him being. Oh, Grizzly Man. That's what it was called. Yeah. Yeah. And there's footage. They won't show the footage. But there was footage of him actually being eaten by the bears. They did play the audio, though. Play the audio. Exactly. It was really disturbing. Yeah. Quite. And that's actually on our. Our friends podcast, the No Format podcast, Josh and Jason, I just gave you a shout out. Josh and Jason, we love you. Yeah, indeed. But no, there was a guy who did a film special on, I believe, Animal Planet, where okay. he lived with lions. And by live with lions, I didn't mean like he lived with them. He observed them at very, very close range. Right. Closer than most people would consider for comfort. And he did certain things to give the impression like he himself was a lion. So he had a beard, a, a, a very bushy beard to kind of give the impression of Maine. And he had, uh, in a weird way, a roar. Uh, he wouldn't roar like a lion would roar, but if a lion got really close to him, he would yell out, Hey! In his deepest, loudest voice possible, and the lion would back off. Hey, so, hey, hey, yeah. I'm walking in! Yeah. Hey. And of course, he's like a six-foot-tall dude, so yeah. like... You and he's look, from the Bronx, and yeah. so, you know, he can take on a lion. <laughs> he, he already looks intimidating. That's one of the basic rules when you encounter a wild animal, is you try to make yourself look as big as possible, yeah. and as loud as possible. So they get scared and run away. And that comes back to that pack mentality, right? Yeah. You know, you've got to be the alpha male. You've got to be mm -hmm. the dominant force there so they're not going to mess with you. Right. You know, it also begs the question, is it okay to encroach on animals, some would consider privacy, go into their environments and do these things and, you know, make these documentaries and profit off of it? Is it okay to keep animals in captivity and, again... You know, even though many zoos are trying to make a move towards the conservative side of it all to help rehabilitate animals, is it still okay to make a lot of money off of them? That's a major philosophical argument. And if the goal was to make money, there's an issue. But the truth of the matter, I think, or at least one of the truths of the matter is, is a lot of the stuff out there is with the intention of doing good. Correct. You know, and I think that's what's more important. It's worth noting that many of these documentary films that are made, a lot of the proceeds from those go to societies that take care of animals sure. and 
Also, many zoos are selling those extraordinarily expensive $17 slices of pizza because they need to stay open. That's how they make their money, because caring and feeding these animals and giving them medical attention costs a lot of money. Absolutely. A lot yeah. of money. Yeah, and then, sure, you can donate, but... That's... But donations are only going to get you so much. Yeah. I can see why there might be an ethical debate, but it goes back to the treatment of the animals, and if they're being treated well, I don't see what the issue is. And I also don't see what the argument is behind encroaching on their territory because we've been doing that forever yeah and i don't see how that's any different than what we've been doing for our entire human history we are sharing the land with them more than anything and we're not killing them we're not i mean there is the argument that the further we develop outward the more harm we're putting on other people's habitats and therefore and the more rainforest that we cut down the more likely it is that those animals have to move and find a new place to live and they have to compete with one another for food sources and they themselves begin to diminish as a species. And so particularly the deforestation in the planet has caused many species to go extinct, if not beyond that endangered species list now. So I I know what you mean in terms of, you know, those people who say we shouldn't involve ourselves with animals at all. We should just ignore them and leave them alone and not even observe them or, you know, try to disrupt any of their natural habits. But then there's the way further extreme, right? The reality of it all where we as a developing world are expanding into animals' territories and taking it over. And as a result, we've seen some pretty serious effects on the ecology of the world. Yeah. You know, a lot of species have died as as a result. And a lot of organizations have been created for the protection of animals. And there's even ethical debates about those organizations, right? So Greenpeace, for example, comes to mind, which was created in the 1970s. These animal right activists. And how far is too far? And is it really helping any animals? And that's kind of a big question. And again, you have to have respect for animals. You have to treat them humanely. That's why we're humans, right? That's what makes us human, is that we can make that decision. And so whether you choose to eat meat, for example, for ethical reasons or not, that's entirely your own belief system. Whether you think it's okay, though, to take animals and keep them in tiny little cages and and force them to have these miserable existence just so we could eat meat, that's a whole other issue, in my opinion. I eat meat. I'm very much a carnivore. I'm okay with that. But I still don't think it's okay to keep chickens and other animals in these tight confined spaces and more or less keep them in these horrible deplorable conditions yeah, totally but and there's been lots of development in that area too i would say in the last 10 years if not more there's been a big raise toward grass-fed beef yeah and free uh, range free range and then uh, well there's a difference between free range and cage free free range interestingly enough since you're getting into my area of expertise now which is food <laughs> <laughs> you foodie you uh what cage Free means is that they are not living in any cages. They are free to run around as you want. Free range actually means they have, or is that, maybe I have it backwards. One of them means that they have a cage and the door is open for one half hour a day. Oh, God. And whether they choose to leave in there is their choice. But because of that, they are considered free range or cage free, whichever the we're, uh, we're leaving sorry. it up to the chickens yeah. and to be honest the chickens they, they they're, they're good they don't want to go anywhere never mind the fact that they've been so cooped up yeah. pun intended yeah uh, in, the, <laughs> in those cages that they don't yeah. know that they can get out they you can't know? even walk in many cases exactly yeah it's yeah. really grotesque it is quite grotesque but the good news is the slow food movement which has been developing in this country as well as i mean it's not really unique to other countries because they've been kind of just been doing it <laughs> yeah. they don't have to, as much of a industrial food complex as we have in this country they let the chickens do what they do naturally they follow the cows around and they they eat larvae off of cow pies 
and we think that's disgusting. That's not. That's their natural diet. Yeah. And uh, there's actually studies that have been shown that uh, the corn that we're feeding animals now produces an unhealthier meat. There, there's not as much nutrients in right. the meat, and it could lead to further health problems. There's a much richer flavor and nutritional content in the, the naturally raised. Yeah. Well, look at our ancient ancestors. Look mm-hmm. at the development of animal husbandry, which is the intentional breeding of animals for the purpose of creating food and, mm-hmm. a, and a viable workforce. They were all free range or cage free or whatever you want to call it. You know, they they lived a very natural life in that sense, and that they lived on the land and they ate off the land, and they were a considerably healthier form of food at that time. They didn't grow nearly as fat, and we couldn't make as many pork chops and uh, and steaks out of them, but it was still better for you. And you know what? Sure. It was a better existence for the animal as well. So I know that there are a lot of folks who are making efforts to to move in that right direction. Yeah, well, not only that, but we also have been spoiled in this country. I'm guilty as charged because I have a meat every day. Yeah, but that for a long time wasn't that was a luxury. You know, meat was something. The chicken gave you eggs. You didn't eat the chicken until <laughs> it stopped producing. Right, eggs, exactly. You know, and in ancient Egypt, for example, because you know I love to tie it back to ancient Egypt, eating meat was very much a luxury. You hardly ever experienced that. You could go your entire life and never eat meat. That's how rare the occurrence was. And when you did, it was usually a work animal that had reached its usefulness and was getting old and probably suffering from arthritis and not feel comfortable. And so they would put it out of its misery, but rather than wasting the food, uh, they would eat it. And that was one of the rare times when you had meat and you didn't waste it, right? Because you didn't live in a cold environment. You had to eat the meat quick. So rather than just hoarding it for yourself, it was actually a time of celebration. And the community would come together because they were generally much smaller back then. And a single cow could give a nice little meal to a small community. It was a lot gamier. You know, it wasn't exactly the, probably the, the juiciest cuts of meat. But when it did happen, it was, a, it was a pretty special thing. And it was community building. So there you go. Well, that's that's a whole, th- we have to do a topic on food because that's oh, so I know. You, deeply you, woven into the. You will be the, the guru, the food guru on that episode. <laughs> well, I'll try you at know. least. Yeah. Well, sir, uh, this has been an interesting topic, to say the least. You know, yeah. Going back over the history of how we got to domesticate animals. and Well, there's a word you use. What's, what's the word you use? Well, domestication and then also tamed animals. Just and tamed animals in general, yeah. How we, how we evolved from that into where we've got them today. Indeed. There is something very sentimental about that relationship that you develop with that animal, that companionship. I will say yeah. that my dog definitely has a personality, and we've, and we've seen it come out in numerous circumstances. <laughs> and while I won't go as far as to say that these animals have spirits necessarily, because some people believe that, some people don't, they're definitely to be cherished, I will say. They, they, they have the capacity to show affection, and you do create this mutual relationship with it. So if you're skeptical for some reason about own, owning a pet, don't be. Yeah, treat that pet well, give it a good life, and it in turn will give you a lot back. You know, we have shown through many, many, many examples and studies that having a pet in the life of someone who's very ill helps them to recover faster, helps them to relieve a lot of that stress that's causing them the inability to form antibodies and and support their immune system. And by being able to relieve that stress and give them that companionship, many times people get better and get better much faster than they would have. Think about all the usefulness that we have of animals who are service animals. Mm-hmm. service dogs who help us in disaster situations or to sniff out bombs in the airport or what have you. 
Again, if maybe if you're skeptical about owning an animal, maybe consider becoming a foster parent for one of these animals and helping them to learn and train. There's licenses that you can apply for and tests that you can take. And maybe it'll be a great way for you to kind of get used to that idea and give something back to your community. Indeed. I couldn't have said it better. But we'd like to just remind you guys that you can follow us on Twitter at Nerdonomy and, of course, on both our Facebook pages for Nerds on History and Nerds on Film. You may subscribe to our podcast now on Stitcher Radio as well as the iTunes Store. Of course, you can listen to our on our website directly at nerdonomy.com. There are so many ways that you can listen yeah. to our voices. It's ridiculous. We are spreading out there <laughs> to get as many people to listen as possible. And please, buy a t-shirt. You know, we've got some cool stuff on there now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Our merch page is really cool. It's expanding all the time. Indeed. Uh, and again, a personal invitation just to tie it back to the beginning of the episode. We love it when you guys comment on our Facebook page. We love that the suggestions that you make lead into shows like this one that you're listening to right now. And why don't you guys go on to Facebook or Twitter and share an experience that you have about an animal that maybe you've owned or an opinion that you've had on something we've mentioned here on the show. Maybe you have your own opinions on uh, on animal rights and the morality of zoos, or, or you just sure. want to share an experience about an animal. I would say, hey, post a picture of your pet. Yeah. Uh, we want to see them. What's their name? You know you what? Know? We're going to do it. Let's do it. We're going to do it. We're going to put our pets on Facebook, and we encourage you to, to do the same. And uh, I encourage you not to put nerd glasses on their face, despite the fact that uh, <laughs> it would be really cool. They probably won't like it, though, so you no. probably shouldn't. But we could Photoshop them in. You could Photoshop them in. That'd be good. <laughs> do not. I, I'm just getting on this. Do not dress up your pets. It is so cruel. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm sorry if we're touching on anyone's toes here, but yeah, don't do it, please. No, we've done it with Ellie, and she hates it yeah they, they fight as hard as possible to get out of them and they don't need to be help santa's little helpers this holiday season they, really they don't, don't need to be elves just let them be cats and dogs exactly yeah brian good night good night eric <laughs>